Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. We have been in a study of the gospel according to Luke for several months. We took a bit of a break over the summer to look at Proverbs, but we are now back in the book of Luke. And this morning we are in chapter 14, and we'll begin the reading in verse 25. Luke 14, verses 25 through 35, the end of the chapter. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Please give it your full attention. Now great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who come against him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Hallmark movies are not known for their artistic quality. But 30 years ago, Back early when they were in the movie-making business, there was one Hallmark movie that got very good reviews and was very popular. It starred Glenn Close and Christopher Walken, and it was called Sarah, Plain and Tall. I thought of that movie this week as I thought about what it means to follow Christ. In that movie, it's nothing like the formulaic Christmas Hallmark movies you think of today. It was really a, it was a good story to it. Um, it was set in Kansas in the early 1900s, and it's about a farmer named Jacob. And Jacob is, as the movie starts, he's grieving over the death of his wife. And he's struggling to take care of his two children and also struggling to maintain his farm. And so what he does is he decides to do something that is unthinkable to us today, but in that day it was actually kind of a popular solution to such a problem, is he put an ad in the newspapers across the country seeking a mail order bride. And back in Maine, there was a spinster named Sarah, who was plain and tall by her own description. And Sarah was at a point in her life where she had to make some major changes. She was looking for a new direction. She saw the ad in the paper and decided to respond to it. And so, this relationship starts on questionable terms. Matter of fact, as Sarah travels halfway across the country to join Jacob in Kansas, they form almost like a contract of services more than a marriage. It's, you know, she, he needed somebody to take care of the house and somebody to take care of the children and so that he could do his work on the farm. And 
and she really just wanted a new life, a new start, a new beginning, and really wasn't even, you could tell in the beginning, there wasn't much interest on either part to have any kind of a romantic relationship. It was just more of a, of a functional, utilitarian thing. Well, the movie covers this one-month trial where Sarah lives in the household and tries to decide whether she's going to stay or not and become Jacob's wife. And during that month, even though they start out with very self-centered, selfish reasons for being in this arrangement, over the course of this month, they face many different trials and tribulations and conflicts. And over the course of that time, you watch as that relationship slowly becomes a real loving relationship. And not to ruin the ending for you, but they do get married and form a happy marriage. For most of us, I think of that movie because our relationship with Jesus Christ probably started in a similar way. Started out as kind of a uh, contractual thing. You know, Jesus was offering a lot of things that we needed. He was offering to take away our shame, to take away our guilt, to give us forgiveness, to give us eternal life, to give us peace, to give us meaning in life. And when we heard that and we heard it was free, we thought, this is great. Matter of fact, we're willing, Jesus, even to get into kind of a contractual relationship with you. We'll follow you. We'll go to church most Sundays. We'll give our tithe most of the time. We'll even join a committee. And it turns out to be more like a business deal than a relationship. It sounds more like, Jesus, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. I'll do these things for you, you do these things for me, I'll hold on to my life and add all these good things that I want to add to my life, and everybody will be happy. But then as the relationship develops, you begin to realize that Jesus is not content to just have your church attendance and your tithe and your service on a committee at church. You find out over time as you begin to dig into his word, he actually requires your life, your heart, all of you and all that you possess. Maybe some of you started into that relationship, and when the contract took a turn towards that kind of relationship, you started to say, hey, I'm not sure this is what I signed on for. Well, that's what this passage is really asking you to consider. At the beginning of the passage, notice that Luke points out how big the crowd is that's following Jesus. That's where we're at, and that's the stage that we're at in his ministry. He's still a very popular movement. He's got people following him everywhere. He's performing miracles. He's, he's giving all this divine wisdom in his teaching, and people are flocking to him. He's the in thing. He's the hip movement. Everybody wants to be a part of it. But if you've read the scriptures very carefully, you realize in a hurry that Jesus never measured the success of his ministry by the sides of the crowds that were following him. What he does here, and he actually does more and more as his ministry gets closer and closer. Remember, his, his face is set towards Jerusalem. He's, he's on his mission to go to the cross to die for the sins of his people. And as he gets closer to Jerusalem, what he does is he starts actually paring down the crowd intentionally. And that's what he's doing here, is he's challenging all these people that are flocking to him. He's challenging them, on what basis are you considering being a follower of mine. What does this relationship, what do you expect it to look like? What do you expect to get out of it? What do you expect to give to it? 
And he's warning those people who are coming to him and following him for the wrong reasons. And it is still very, very true that you can follow Jesus for the wrong reasons and not actually be following him at all. Jesus uses here two short parables to get the idea across that you need to sit down and seriously consider your own heart, your own motivations, and your own expectations when you decide to follow Christ. Before you make that commitment to Christ, you need to sit down and count the cost. He, used, he tells two quick stories, and with parables in general, but especially these short ones like this, you got to be careful to not try to figure out what each element in the story relates to or try to treat it like an allegory where every part of the story means something. He's just trying to make one simple, single point through these two parables. The first parable he tells is about a man who builds a tower. Now, the word tower there in the original language, we don't know if that means like a watchtower that you might put outside your vineyard to protect it, or it might mean a, a tower that you build on your farm just to store your harvest. It could mean either one. It doesn't matter to the point of the story. The point of the story is, if, you're, if this farmer is going to build a tower, he better sit down and figure out whether he has the resources to complete it. Because if he doesn't, if he jumps into starting the project and he doesn't have the resources or the commitment to complete it, a half-built tower will be a monument to his foolishness in the community from that point on. And then Jesus tells a story about a king. The king is told that a huge invading army is coming his way. And he's told that that army is twice the size of, of his own army. And so Jesus says, you better believe the wise thing to do for that king to do is to stop, sit down with his, his uh, generals, his advisors, and determine whether with his armies and his armaments and his resources, he could have any chance of winning that war against this much stronger army, or should he rather wisely send a delegation to seek peace so that he isn't destroyed. Again, don't make too much of the details of the story. His point is very simple and clear. Before you commit yourself, to something as huge as following Jesus Christ in your life, sit down and seriously consider what you're committing yourself to. And so he says three times in this passage that we read, if you are not willing to accept this kind of change in your life, then you cannot be my disciple. Three times he says, if you cannot accept this transformation, you cannot be my disciple. Now, let me just make it absolutely clear. The scriptures teach that salvation is free. Salvation is by grace alone. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But if you receive that free gift, you must be ready to accept the life-transforming power of the Holy Spirit into your life, the Spirit of Christ. He will change you. And you need to understand that before you commit. The faith that saves is much more than just a mental assent. It's more, more, much more than just believing a creed. The faith that saves is at its very core a trust in a risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that trust by its very essence, by its very nature, will transform your values, it'll, it'll transform your loyalties, and it'll transform your commitments in life. 
And that's what Jesus wants us to realize in this passage. He tells his followers here, this massive crowd following, he says to them, sit down and consider before you commit. You may not be a disciple if, first of all, you love others more than you love me. You may not be a disciple if you love others more than you love me. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, before we dig into that very shocking thing that he says, you've got to hate your most loved people in your life. Before we dig into that, one of the commentators I read pointed this out, and I hadn't really thought of it, but he said, you need to stop and consider. He says, this is Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary. He says, verse 26 is not, first of all, a matter of discipleship, but of Christology. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is he claiming to be? He goes on to say, who gave Jesus the right to talk that way? Who does he think he is? He is saying that he must have the sole and supreme place of affection in your life. What sheer audacity. That Jesus would claim that you must love him more than any other person you love in your life. Even your wife, even your husband, even your children, even your parents, your brothers, your sisters. You must love him more. Davis says that this is really just a restatement of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And who can give that kind of commandment but God? This is a clear. So many places in the Gospels where Jesus claims to be God, directly or indirectly, this is, a, this is pretty direct. He's saying, you must put me in the place of God in your life because I am God. He's fully God and fully man. And you shall have no other gods before him. You shall love no other person or thing more than you love me. Well, Jesus, by saying that we must hate the other people in our lives, is being intentionally shocking and provocative. Yes, he wants to get our attention by saying it that way. And it's a, yes, in a sense, it's hyperbole. But it's the way that scripture talks. Hate in this context, does not mean the same thing that we mean when we say we hate someone or hate something. Our hate is so corrupted and immersed in pride and sin and selfishness, it's hard to think of, of hate in the sense that Jesus refers to it here. When we talk about hate, we usually mean something like intensely dislike. I intensely dislike that person. I loathe that person. I abhor that person. I detest that person. That's not what he means here. Often in scripture, the word hate is used in a comparative sense. To compare one love with another love. You know, you might love your neighbor here, and you might love your children here, and you might love your wife or your husband here. He's saying, you need to love me here. In comparison, your love for me must be like hate to the other loves of your life. It's comparative. He's not saying don't love your wife, don't love your husband, don't love your children, don't love your past. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you need to love me that much. There must be no rivals to the place of affection that I have in your heart and in your life. You see this in the way that the Old Testament talks about the two wives of Jacob. Now, 
just in case you're new to the Bible, it's not good to have two wives. And the, New, the Old Testament relates the fact that some of these Old Testament men had two wives, but nowhere does it approve of the fact that they had two wives. It was a part of their sinfulness that they had two wives. And it just is, even if it's, Scripture didn't say it was wrong, it's really a bad idea to have two wives. And so Jacob had two wives. One was Rachel and one was Leah. And I'm going to read the description of the type of relationship that Jacob had with his wife Rachel and his other wife Leah. I'm going to read the way it's described in Genesis 29, verses 30 and 31. It says, So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. Okay? That's a problem right there. He loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban another seven years so that he could marry Rachel. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Now, is, is the message of Scripture there that Jacob truly detested and abhorred Leah? No. It's saying the Lord recognized that the comparison between Jacob's love for Leah and his love for Rachel was so different. There was such a gap between the amount of love that he had for Rachel as compared to the love he had for Leah that you could say he loved Leah and hated Leah, or loved Rachel and hated Leah. It's a very similar way that uh, talks about God saying, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. He didn't mean that he abhorred and detested Esau. It meant that he loved Jacob so much more. And so that's what he's saying. And actually, if you want to be sure that you're interpreting this passage correctly, all you need to do is go over to Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, where Jesus says the same thing using more direct language. He says there, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Check. That's, what we are, that's how we interpret it. That's exactly what he meant. Being a disciple of Jesus means more than adopting his moral code or his values. Being a disciple of Jesus isn't just trying to obey his will. Being a disciple of Jesus means putting him first in your life and loving him more than the most loved people in your life. Being more passionate about your relationship with him than you are passionate about the other relationships in your life. And if there are relationships in your life, whether it be a husband or a wife or a parent or a child or a friend, whatever the relationship might be, if it's interfering, if it's preventing you from loving Christ, if it is put in the place in your life where Christ should be, then that relationship needs to be reordered in your life and put where it's supposed to be, under the Lordship of Christ. And I've known of many people who have been hindered in their discipleship to Christ because a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a wife or a husband or a parent is interfering in their devotion to Christ. Christ is your first love. The second point he makes, you may not be a disciple if your life is not shaped by the cross of Christ. You may not be a disciple if your life is not shaped by the cross. He says in verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, today in modern Christianese, the kind of trite phrases that we throw around in the church all the time, we use the phrase bearing a cross like a metaphor. You have your cross to bear, I've got my cross to bear. It's the trials and difficulties of 
living in this world. But understand in the first century, when Jesus said this, it was not yet a metaphor. It, was, it had a very literal meaning. To see somebody bearing a cross means standing in the streets of Jerusalem and watching a criminal sentenced to death carry a big wooden beam to his cross so that he could be crucified. And so when Jesus says, unless you're willing to bear my cross or your cross, interestingly, then you're not able to be my disciple. The cross was a marker of rejection, shame, impending death. The cross is what all of us deserve. The eternal punishment for our sins. But that's what Jesus' cross was all about. He went to the cross to pay for your sins. He went to the cross to die in your place. He bore the cross so that you didn't have to. So what does he mean when it says you must bear your cross? Well, he's saying that your life must be shaped by the cross. When you follow Christ, you follow him to the cross, and you follow him to the empty tomb, and you follow him to new life in him. That's what the whole chapter of Romans chapter 6 is all about. The Apostle Paul teaches about the Christian life, and he's basically describing a cross-shaped life. He says, beginning in verse 5, For if we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we also will live with him. That's the cross-shaped life, is a life that dies to sin and lives to Christ. You must be willing to bear that cross. Are you willing? That's what it means to follow Christ, is to die to sin and live to Christ. That becomes your identity. This world teaches us to place our identity in our college degree, or our job, or our income, or our, the neighborhood we live in, or the color of our skin, or the gender, or the sexual preference, whatever it is you want to be. The world tells you all these different ways that you're supposed to find your identity, but if you want to follow Christ, your identity is found in the cross. That's what you live for. You die to self and you live to Christ. Jesus stated it much more clearly in that verse that was read earlier in our worship service, chapter 9, verse 23 of the Gospel of Luke. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Daily. It's a, it's a lifestyle of dying to sin, dying to self, and living to Christ. We follow the one who before he went to the cross to that unique one-time cross where all sin was paid for, he was about to go through the pains of hell for everyone for whom he died. Eternity of hell, he died. That's what he experienced on the cross as the Father turned his back upon him, as he bore our sin. As he was contemplating approaching that, he said, Lord, if there's any other way, please take this cup away from me, but not my will, but your will be done. That's what it means to die to self and live to Christ. Not my will, but Christ's will be done. That's what it means to follow Christ. We no longer live for prosperity. We no longer live for popularity. We no longer live for our family, for our job, 
we live for Christ. Phil Riken's sermon on this passage, he called it, he titled it, The Cruciform Life, and that's what it means. The cruciform life is a cross-shaped life. Dying to self, living to Christ. And there's this beautiful picture in Revelation. Revelation is a book that's full of visions, full of pictures. And there's a picture there of our beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, those who did follow him faithfully till the very end of their life, those who actually were willing to die because of their commitment to Christ. When that was given to them as a choice, you either deny Christ or you die. They chose to die. And there's a picture of them in this vision in heaven in Revelation chapter 12. It describes them this way. It says, they have conquered the accuser, Satan. They have conquered Satan by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony because they loved not their lives even unto death. They died to self that they might eternally live to Christ. They loved Christ more than they loved their life itself. It's hard, you know, in a moment like this, with all the news accounts going on all around us, to not think of our brothers and sisters in Christ that are facing this choice even right today. There are brothers and sisters in Christ in the nation of Afghanistan under Taliban rule who either right now or soon will be faced with similar choices. Are you going to live for Christ are you going to live for this world? Are you willing to die in order to follow Christ? Would you be willing to do that? And I think I could speak for most of us and say, I shudder to know whether I would or not, but that's where we trust in the grace of Christ because the grace of Christ will give you the strength to do so if your trust in Christ is real because that's what real faith does. Fear of losing something in this world is the greatest weapon our enemy can use against us. You know, you think about persecutors, countries, dictators, oppressors, whatever. They threaten people to get them to conform to their will. And they threaten to take away their belongings. They threaten to take away their jobs. They threaten to take away their families. And if none of that works, they'll threaten to take away their life. But you, if you're a follower of Christ, if you really are a follower of Christ, you are invincible to all those threats because you love Christ more than any of those things and you will always choose Christ even over your physical life if that's what it comes to because your life is shaped by the cross dying to self dying to sin and living to Christ so those are the first two disqualifiers that Jesus gives us you can't call yourself a disciple of Christ if you love others more than you love Christ and you can't call yourself a disciple of Christ if you're unwilling to take up your cross in order to follow him. The third indicator he gives is whether you are a disciple of Jesus or not is if you are unwilling to be a manager instead of an owner. Now, after everything we've talked about, this sounds easier, but it's really not. This is where the rubber meets the road, especially for wealthy Americans like you and me. Are you willing to live life as a manager of the things in your life? Are you willing to give up your status as an owner? Verse 33, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now let me be clear, the word renounce there does not, in most cases, mean give away. Not in most cases. He's not saying you must be willing to give away everything you have in order to follow him and be a disciple. It means, in this context, to relinquish your ownership rights. 
to sign over your rights to ownership to everything that you've worked so hard to gain in your life. All the hours you've worked, all the money you've earned, this, this, the investments you've made, the, the savings account you have, to sign all of that over to the Lord Jesus Christ and have him be the owner and you be the manager of it. It's the biblical concept of stewardship. And like I said, it sounds easy when it talks about whether you're going to you know, give up your life or not for Christ, but this is where we live every day. Are we going to be a manager or an owner of the things in our life? Jesus confronted the rich young ruler, remember. He wanted to know how to, to be a disciple, how to be in the kingdom of God. And Jesus said to him, well, you need to sell everything you own and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. He doesn't require that of us. I don't, probably nobody in this room, as Jesus said to you, you need to sell everything you own and give up everything you possess and come and follow him. But that man left, was unwilling to do that because he loved his money, he loved his prosperity, he loved the status that it gives him in this world, the things that it gives him. He loved those things more than he loved Jesus. And he walked away sad. There may be some in this room that if Jesus did say to you, you've got to give up your career, you've got to give up your money, your savings account, your investment, your car, your house, you've got to give it all up in order to follow me. Would you be willing to say yes? Yes, Jesus, I love you more than the things in my life. What Jesus does ask of all of us is that we submit the things that we own, the things that we are put under our oversight in this life, we submit it to him as Lord and use it for his glory. You know, this renouncing, this, the renouncing of possessions that Jesus is talking about here, that was really the powerful testimony of the early church. Twice early in the book of Acts, it talks about how the early church lived out this kind of commitment to Christ. It says in Acts chapter 2, verses 44 and 45, all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. These people were willing to give up their possessions for the sake of loving the church, loving the brethren, for the sake of loving Christ. And I love the explanation that comes two chapters later in chapter 4. Listen to this. Chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. There's a, a creed and a motto for a church. None of them, none of them said that any of the things that belonged to them were their own because they're managers. They're not owners, they're managers. And the Lord gives us the resources he gives in life so that we might serve him fully and that we might be generous to others, that we might be open channels of his blessings and his resources to those who are in need. That's how the healthy church is to live. It's an extremely difficult way for us to live in an American culture. From the time we're born, we're taught to be owners. We're taught to work hard, to, and we're taught private property rights from day one. And in an American government sense, that's fine, but not when it comes to the kingdom of God. Whatever is mine has been given to me as a steward to manage for God's glory and for the good of the church. And that has huge implications for how you live your life daily. Jesus said, now let me, before I get to the next verse, let me say this, because I don't want to be misunderstood. It doesn't preclude a nice vacation at the beach once in a while. This doesn't preclude buying a new car. 
This doesn't preclude saving for retirement. Those are all things that can be done within the will of Christ for your own good, for the good of your family, for the, for the good of your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, for the good of the community. You can spend things on yourself. But understand that the Lord has given that to you as a gift. And some of the stuff that you're claiming for your own use probably ought to be given to others. Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. Just chew on that for a minute. Whoever loves his life loses it. I love my life. <laughs> the Lord's been good to me. I've been really sheltered. I mean, I just look at my life compared to so many other people in the world, and I have a nice car. I've got a nice house. I've got a couple of nice cars. I've got a couple of nice bikes. You know, I've got, I've got pets. I've got children, grandchildren. I've got a wife who loves me. I mean, my life is good. I love my life. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Again, it's all about comparative love. You know, you can love the good things, the good gifts you give in life, but don't love them in that way. That you see yourself as the owner, that this is, belongs to you, that's even worse, that somehow you've earned the right to this. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Compared to my love for Christ, my love for his kingdom, my love for the new heavens and the new earth, this future of perfection that I will live by his grace for all eternity, this life is easily slips through my hand. I sometimes will see a picture, I don't know if you've ever seen these, but sometimes you'll see a picture of somebody who's lived on death row for a long time, an inmate, a prison who's got a life sentence, and they'll show pictures of him in the cell. And in their cell, you'll see pictures on the wall and maybe little decorations and books on the shelf. And, and they've done their best because they're confined to this wretched little cell. They do their best to make it as, as homey as possible, to make themselves comfortable. That's the only place they can be, the only place they can live. But could you imagine one of those lifers in that little tiny cell, that little homey but tiny cell? Could you imagine any of them saying, you know, if they were offered a pardon? Say, no, I'm, I'm happy here. I like it here. I'm comfortable here. Now, you know, forget your pardon. I don't need your pardon. No, none of them would do that because they know the freedom that awaits outside the cell. But that's like, that's how so many, so many of us are like. We are so love this life that it's, it's just a crummy little wretched cell compared to what Christ is offering in the kingdom of God. Why would we choose this over that? And that's where you get to the real point of this. I mean, I've used a lot of language here, shocking terms to think about what discipleship is like. I mean, you're trying to recruit people for your group, just whatever your group is. Can you imagine trying to recruit people for your group and you say to them, you need to uh, renounce, you need to hate, you need to die, you need to lose if you want to be a part of this group. And that's exactly what Jesus said. But it's because that's all about this world the things that turn to dust and blow away, the things that are meaningless in the eternal scheme of things. Hate those things. Lose those things. Renounce those things so that you can receive the kingdom. Be sons and daughters of the king and the eternal kingdom. To be given the new heavens and the new earth. But so much more than that. To be given God himself, your creator and your redeemer. Be given him for all eternity. How can you even compare the exchange? 
Leon Morris says here, Jesus is not, of course, discouraging discipleship. He's warning against an ill-considered, faint-hearted attachment in order that those who follow him may know the real thing. Yes, sit down and count the cost. Sit down and consider whether you truly are willing to give your whole heart and life and future and love to Jesus Christ. But realize, if you make that commitment, you will never, ever, for all eternity, regret it because of what he gives. If we put our faith and trust in him, we realize that we are exchanging that which is worthless for that which is eternally of extreme value. I mean, who of us could put a price on the fruit of the Spirit that Christ gives to those who follow him? Joy, peace, patience, contentment, kindness. You want to put a price on that? What do you want to sell those things for? You would never sell those fruit of the Spirit. And they're given to you freely by grace if you just commit yourself to following Christ. But more than that, Christ himself is the greatest treasure, the greatest beauty, the greatest joy, and he's giving you himself for all eternity. Nothing and no one in this world can compare. And that's the exchange that he offers if you will lose your life here and follow him. I'm just going to close by giving you an Old Testament saint and a New Testament saint that epitomize this view of life. Listen, first of all, to David. Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you, Lord? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And then there's the Apostle Paul. The book of Philippians, chapter 3, verse 8. Looking back at all the great accomplishments, he was a very accomplished Jewish leader and teacher. And he looks back on that and he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for opening our eyes to see who Jesus is. We would have never left the things that we love so much in this world in order to follow him if we didn't see how beautiful, how pure, how holy, how powerful, how victorious, how gracious he is. Thank you for opening our eyes to see him as he is. And Lord, thank you that the more we see his glory, the easier it is for us to leave behind the things that we treasured in this world. Lord, help us to use these treasures well for the sake of the kingdom for the rest of our lives. And for anyone here this morning who doesn't have that kind of relationship with Christ, I pray that this passage of your word would challenge them and convict them. And Lord, open their eyes to see as well that this is the true life, life in Christ dying to self, dying to sin, and living to him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.